Hello, friends. It's good to be back with you. Even I, I uh, <clears throat> have had a, a great time away, even though it began a little earlier than I anticipated. Um, I, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, I, was, I was supposed to preach a few weeks back when David Palmer was in the pulpit, but um, Friday I came down with COVID and uh, my second round. And um, didn't last long, but uh, it interrupted uh, at least my plans. God's plans were never interrupted, of course, but um, my plans were, and it, uh, it changed our direction for our, our summer vacations and, and the things we were planning to do, but uh, God had other ideas for us, and, and we're thankful. But uh, it is so good to be back with you and, and worship with you and now open God's word with you and see what the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. You know, every, every Sunday we come together here and we, we pray about, we think about um, our faith, right? We, we are interested in, in knowing what it is that, that saves our soul and, and pursuing Christ and all that he is for us. Uh, and, and you can't, you can't I, at least I can't, get through these things without thinking about my soul, you know, the songs we sing, examining my heart and thinking about, you know, where, where is my heart in these things? What is it that saves the Christian? What is saving faith? And do I possess it? You know, some of us were raised in an environment that were uh, encouraged to you know, reject those kind of questions and, and say, you know, that you, know you, you write the date of your conversion in your Bible, and if you have questions, you go back and read that date that's in, your, in the leaflet of your Bible, and there you go. There's your assurance. But I think that Scripture speaks differently about these things. And today's text is helpful in uh, this discussion helping us understand what saving faith is. Is it enough to just say a sinner's prayer, a, a list of words and, and sentences, and then call yourself saved or think to yourself, I'm good, I'm, I'm prepared? Or is there more to it than some words that we might repeat when we're at junior high Bible camp? Well, <clears throat> I'm sure you know the answer to that if you've been at Sun Valley Church for very long, but it, it, nevertheless, it's important to review these things. And, and more than that, <laughs> to preach the text that's in front of us, <laughs> right? So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at this text that, that was read for you by Jared and uh, see what God might reveal to our hearts in this. I think it's important that we understand a little background before I get too deeply into this sermon. And especially since I've been gone for four or five weeks, uh, and that is what was stated or read from verses 22 through 26. So my, my last sermon ended with that passage. And if you remember, it seems that Jesus had difficulty healing this guy, right? He had, he had to try twice. Did you, did you see that? Did you notice that? Uh, at first, the guy that was uh, under the healing touch of the Savior says, thanks for touching my eyes, but <laughs> people look like trees. Anything else you got? You know, kind of the feeling we get when we look at this text. And of course, we know that's not the case. We know that Jesus had to try twice to do anything. You remember just a week before that, we, we studied the, the, the sentence that said, and he did all things well, right? He didn't try and fail and then try again and get it right the second time. He had an objective, a purpose for healing the man the way he did. And it was to, it was to communicate the nature of saving faith. For most of us, 
It takes time. It takes thought and repetition. And in today's text, we are <laughs> thankful that Jesus taught that particular lesson with the blind man in Bethsaida. Because in our text today, we see that the Lord is patiently encouraging and walking his 12 disciples towards a more deep and accurate understanding of who he is and why he came. And that's something that we need to know if we want to be people who claim to be saved and forgiven of our sins. It goes way beyond the sinner's prayer. And I'm not saying the sinner's prayer is wrong or bad or whatever. I'm just saying the sinner's prayer doesn't save anybody. It never has. Jesus saves people, <laughs> right? Not the words that come out of your mouth. And so this is a, a wonderful place we find ourselves in, and as it would be, um, verses 22 through 26 really are the end of part one, Mark part one, and now we're in Mark part two. This is the conclusion of the book of Mark, verse, verses 28, 27 through the end of the book. And you'll, you'll, I'll, I'll kind of guide you through the thoughts, these thoughts here as we go. But the first thing that we see and that Jesus wanted to make sure of was that his 12 disciples understood his true identity. The, the gospel of Mark, the author Mark, wants to make sure that his readers, you and me, understand this first and foremost, the true identity of Jesus Christ. That's why he wrote the book, at least the first eight chapters of the book, right? Um, so in the same way that, that Jesus brought gradual physical sight to the man at Bethsaida, verses 23 through 25, he now is going to bring gradual spiritual sight to his disciples. They were learning little by little who Jesus was and why he came to this planet. And as we can tell by reading Mark's record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, um, Jesus' life demands an explanation. You can't read any gospel record and walk away unfazed or indifferent to it, if you're honest. I suppose you could say that, that doesn't impress me, but that's not an honest response. There's, there's no way that reading honestly through the record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, you can come away with that kind of an opinion. And so what we have here is Mark's call, Jesus's call, the Holy Spirit's call to you and me to be able to identify the true nature of Jesus the man. Who is he? All his miracles cannot be ignored, either then or now. Once we encounter Jesus, we are forced to decide who he is. And that's intentional. Jesus asked his disciples in verse 27, the most important question ever asked, the most important question you'll ever answer, Jesus asks in verse 27. Look at it with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, and this is not happenstance, this, this isn't just, oh yeah, Mark forgot to include this question earlier. No, this is a, a strategy here by Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit through Mark the author. He asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? <laughs> and, and he didn't leave many alternatives, did he? No. Your answer, my answer to this question says nothing about our intellectual capacity, says nothing about our upbringing or our social status. Your answer says everything about your relationship with God and your eternal destiny. You may have no negative feelings about Jesus. In fact, you may think he was a great man, a good teacher, an influential leader. But if you're answer is wrong to this question, you're in grave danger. 
Who is Jesus Christ? Mark, the author of this gospel, gives his answer to this all-important question in the very first sentence of the book. Do you remember? This is the beginning of Jesus, the Son of God's ministry. This is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Mark lets us know his opinion immediately. Chapter 1, verse 1, sentence 1. But now, he goes through the first eight chapters delivering evidence for that claim, for that proposition. And this is the objective of all the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They each set out to prove that Jesus of Nazareth is both Messiah, Christ, and God. In fact, the Apostle John ends his Gospel account with this sentence, which many claim to be the most important sentence in all of Scripture. All right? The, the main verse, if you will. These things are written. What things? These things about Jesus. These things in the Old Testament. These things in the New Testament. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is in fact the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, God himself in human flesh, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is why the Bible was written. This is why preachers preach, is so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you'll have life in his name. You'll have eternal life, guaranteed for sure. Nothing to fear once you close your eyes in death and stand before the creator of the universe. If you'll but believe the objective of the entire Bible. So Mark has, up to this point, which is the halfway point of the Gospel of Mark, has established evidence, almost like a, a lawyer would in a courtroom case, um, giving, bringing his evidence, bringing forth witnesses to prove his proposition that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the God of the universe. Um, and, and now Mark's beginning to record the conclusions of the jury, who in this case would have been the twelve. When Peter says to the question, who do people say that I am? Well, you're the Christ. You're the guy. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, especially the King of Israel. And we've been waiting for for centuries and centuries. It was promised to Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned. Who was promised to every major Old Testament character who we worshiped in the, in the temple through the sacrifices. You're the one. So this is what we hear from Peter at this point in the ministry of Jesus here in Mark 8. The 12 had been with him for almost two years. They had plenty of time to examine Christ, literally with him two years nonstop, day and night. They had seen the evidence, and now they're making their convictions about Jesus publicly known. And so, scholars accurately say this is the climax of the book of Mark right here, Peter's confession. Everything before Mark 8.29 looks forward to it. Everything after Mark 8.29 looks back to it. This is the centerpiece of the book. We're heading now into the second half. This really is the final exam that Jesus presents to his 12 to see if they've grasped everything he's been teaching about himself, revealing about himself to them. This is the exam. This is it. Okay, guys, for two years, I've been showing you, teaching you, telling you everything I can possibly that you can understand who I am. Who am I? <laughs> Got one question. Who? Who? There it is, Peter. Yes, you're right. You did not come up with that yourself. In, in the book of Matthew and Luke, Jesus says, God the Father gave that answer to you. And by the way, which is the only way any of us come up with that answer, right? You're not so smart. Oh, <laughs> no. We're actually born blind, just like the man in Bethsaida. Yeah. But the disciples, Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? That was his first question. Who do they say that I am? And they give a series of wrong answers. 
right? Good answers, but wrong answers. Don't you hate that in high school algebra? You give them a good answer, but it's the wrong one. You don't get any credit for it. It's the wrong answer. Good one. Nice try. Wrong answer. Red marks. So the, the, the answers the disciples gave were popular answers of the day. John the Baptist, perhaps. Maybe Elijah, the, the, the prophet that was going to come before the Christ. Maybe it's the promised prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy. All, all these were favorable answers. Each option, false option, though, each option that the disciples gave to Jesus after his first question was affirming. Just like people today who would say that Jesus was a good man, great teacher, influential leader, man, good guy. It doesn't take uh, one converted by the Holy Spirit to say stuff like that, right? You don't have to be a believer to say Jesus was a good man, a good leader. No. You just have to be able to read or listen to someone talking about it. So each of these answers were edifying to Christ, building him up, which was impossible, but denying his identity, ultimately, wrong, ultimately, these answers were all the wrong answers that people were talking about Jesus' identity. He wasn't John the Baptist reincarnated. He wasn't Elijah coming before the Christ. He wasn't the great prophet, necessarily. He was the Christ. There's only one right answer here. But Jesus presses his disciples a little bit further into a little bit more uncomfortable territory where there's no wiggle room. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. I've heard who people say that I am. Who do you say that I am? What's your answer? There's the final exam. Who do you doesn't matter what your mom and dad say. Doesn't matter what grandpa and grandma say about Jesus' identity. Doesn't matter what your pastor, elders, or small group people say about the identity of Jesus Christ. Who do you say? Not your wife. Not your mom. You. So the right answer makes its way out, doesn't it? Mark, as I said earlier, let us know his opinion. And he supported his beliefs by the record that he gave us in the first eight chapters. But Peter's answer to Jesus' question was crystal clear. You are the Christ. And there's a lot that goes with that answer. His answer is the only answer that will actually save the soul. And it's more than repeating just truth. It's not just the fact that Peter said the words, you are the Christ. It's what those words mean and whether or not he truly embraced them. That's why the scriptures were written. It's the only answer that God accepts. The rest of the 12 disciples, of course, were nodding in agreement. Yeah, what he said is where they were. They had all been witnesses to the same miracles. They were all convinced, even Judas. And that kind of gives you a hint as to <laughs> saving faith and what it isn't. Christ, by the way, isn't his last name, right? <laughs> Jesus Christ, is, it's a title. It's, it's the one, the anointed one, the promised one. So when you see Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ, it's his title. Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. And, of course, his name means God saves. He's the one, the promised one from heaven who saves. Now let's look at, <clears throat> since we, the identity of Christ has been established, uh, if you were listening to the reading of the scripture this morning, you know that Peter's not out of the woods, right? There's some issues here that, that uh, <clears throat> he wasn't ready for. So let's go to Jesus and his plan, verses 31 through 33. This is, this is a plan that I think would have 
really upended each of us, um, and I think still does upend certain people that claim to be Christians. Um, Jesus' approach to leading a movement is atypical. Uh, it's not the approach or plan that most leaders devise. If you read verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. That's not really how you introduce a movement, right? No. Uh, but here in a nutshell, Jesus describes what the rest of this gospel, Mark's gospel, records, which is why this is the halfway mark. He came to suffer and die to guarantee eternal life for everyone and anyone who would embrace him for who he is and why he came. The first half of Mark's gospel focuses on who he is. This might be, if you're a Bible student, might be good to record somewhere, either in your Bible, which is what I would do, which I have done, uh, or in your notes someplace. So the first half of Mark's gospel focuses on who he is. Getting his identity right, Mark tells us that this person that we're looking at, Jesus, the Christ, is God come in human flesh. The objective of his coming was that we would believe on him, repent of our sins, and embrace him as our Savior. The king of all creation has come to us, we read, we understand. Mark's goal has been to convince us of these things in the first eight chapters. The second half of the Gospel of Mark focuses on what Jesus came to do. First half, who he was. Second half, what he came to do. He came to solve the ultimate chaos of sin. Isn't that kind of the theme we've been bouncing around for the past year or so? Sin causes chaos. Jesus came to solve that chaos. He came, that's why he came. And, of course, the ultimate solution to the chaos of sin required the suffering and death of our Savior. Certainly, he can make a blind man see, make a lame man walk, uh, feed hungry people. But that's just minor chaos compared to the rubble that our life is in because of sin. Jesus came to solve that. These verses that are in front of us now, verses 31 through 33, clear up any misconception about Jesus' objectives. His rejection, suffering, and death were not a tragedy, as many who misunderstand the purpose of God claim it was. You've read that. You've heard that, right? What a tragedy. Such a promising leader. Such a, a wonderful person. Good teacher. He had to die. Oh. We rejoice over what everybody else calls a tragedy. Right? Yeah. No, these, these difficult things that Jesus records or Jesus said in verse 31 were carefully orchestrated to accomplish the grand purpose of God to save sinners like you and me. So we have in front of us, by Peter's mouth, which is not uncommon, uh, the inaccurate conception of who Jesus is, why he came. And the amazing thing is he just got through saying, you are the Christ. And what was the promise of the Old Testament Christ but to save us from sin? And, of course, every Jew missed it. Well, I can't say every Jew. I think Abraham got it. Um, I think David got it. A few got it. There are probably a few in Christ's life Jews that worshipped God that got it. But the vast majority, like Peter, didn't understand um, they, of course, they, they expected a completely different Messiah than Jesus just laid out here in verse 31. In the Gospel of John, uh, when Jesus describes this very same thing, the religious leaders say, what is this Messiah? Uh, no, that's not the Messiah we worship. Mm -mm. So you can't be him. <laughs> 
But their understanding of the Messiah was a conquering king, a victor that would vanquish the physical enemies of Israel. They expected the Messiah to be the one to overthrow Rome and, and reestablish the supremacy of Israel in the world, as it had been under King David. I mean, after all, Jesus himself calls himself the son of David. What do you mean you're not going to set up David's kingdom? That's who the Messiah is. Jesus, haven't you read the Torah? Is what they might say. Interestingly, the, the plan of God, as recorded throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament reveals a suffering Savior, Messiah. And in our day, without the influences of long-believed tradition, we can see it when we read it. You just heard it read from Isaiah 53. You weren't confused about what that meant. Why? Because you've heard it your entire life. The Jews heard just the opposite their entire life. So when Jesus says what he said in verse 31, they're going, what? You got that wrong. No. They understood it. But it's not obscure in the Old Testament. One of the most famous references we read earlier from Isaiah 53, I'm going to read for you again. You might want to write Isaiah 53 in the verses 3 through 7 in the column of your gospel in Mark next to verse 31. If it's not there already, sometimes the cross-references already have it there. Listen to this. Peter, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed, and all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We don't, we're not confused by that, are we? At all. How could they be? Well, they were raised in a different environment. So, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi is filled with stories, uh, lessons, pictures of the suffering Christ. Their, their worship practices that they did every single day pointed to the suffering Christ, the lamb that was slain. And yet, Peter, representing all of the Jewish nation here, says, no, that's, that's not our Messiah. You know, we, just to put ourselves in more clear light, we, like Peter, may not be too interested in a suffering savior. Think about it. Obviously, Peter did not comprehend this kind of Messiah. We also may want a savior that would make our lives better. I mean, why do you claim to be a Christian? Why did you come to Christ when you did? We, we, we want a Savior who can do something for us, maybe even materially, right? We, we may want a Savior who would improve our financial status, our social status. I mean, why live as a Christian? Why believe what we say we believe if Jesus doesn't make things better? So we can't be too critical of Peter, can we? Just like Peter's hopes of a conquering Messiah, we might have ideas about what God should be like to us and how he ought to perform for us. In fact, when he does or says, says things or asks things of us that, that make us a bit uncomfortable, we might be tempted to say, my God would never do that. When we come across scripture that, that reveals some aspect of the character of God that makes us uncomfortable, we would say, ugh. I don't know how to deal with that, because that's not my God. Is it? <laughs> Isn't it? In fact, when he does or says things or asks things that make us uncomfortable, we might be revealing whether or not we truly believe in Jesus. But this story 
the one in front of us, clearly reveals that we need to be careful about telling God how he ought to be or how things ought to be done. Jesus' response clearly reveals that. Now, wait a minute, Jesus. Come over here for a second. I can just see Peter doing this. This, what you just said, is way off. <laughs> like, that's what Peter said here. God, I know you're sovereign, uh, but your plan for me is way off. This whole cancer thing, mm, no. This whole kids departing, mm, no. Uh, this, no, you're way off, God, on the plan, right? We're a lot more like Peter than we think. Jesus' response to Peter's rebuke is <laughs> stunning, isn't it? You know, uh, it makes me feel good about my callousness. <laughs> it, it, his response was severe. In fact, some would say the most severe in all of Scripture towards a believer. Jesus essentially says, Satan, stay away from me. He says this to Peter, his disciple that he loves. Satan, you got it wrong, and you need to stay away from me. <laughs> so we really, we really don't want to mess around with the purposes of God, do we? If Jesus is going to respond like that to Peter, how is he going to respond to people like us that try and tell him that his plans are wrong for us. You see, Peter, like us, wasn't intentionally trying to interrupt the will of God, right? No. He sincerely thought Jesus had it wrong. He was going to just help him out a little bit. But had Peter succeeded in persuading Jesus to bypass that painful plan and take up Peter's plan, take up Satan's plan, by the way, the same plan that Satan presented in the wilderness, remember? Same plan that Peter was offering. If Jesus would have accepted that, there would have been a massive interruption in the plan of God, and it would have ruined any chance of our salvation. We would not be in this room today if Jesus would have said, you know, Peter, you're right. Thanks for reminding me. I am, I am actually God. So... Aren't you thankful that Jesus is God and his plans prevail? Isaiah 46, right? What I have planned will come to pass. How often do we try to interrupt the will of God in our lives? Probably every time our lives get uncomfortable, right? <laughs> When we see pain or discomfort on the horizon, do we maneuver and wiggle and manipulate our way into the plan and pursue something that we think is better? Obviously, Jesus, this is better, right? You may be convinced that your plan for the future is the best. When you see things turning against your plan, what, do we, what happens to us? We, you know, become agitated, impatient, angry even, and then try to manipulate our circumstances to get back to that comfortable zone that we have planned. It's easy to do so, especially with our kids, right? With no ill intent towards God. Peter wanted Jesus to fit into his agenda and his plans. His picture of life was way better than Jesus's, even for Jesus. God, this is better for you. Just think how much glory you'd receive if I got a, you know, $5,000 raise. I could actually tithe, you know. <laughs> no. We, we, we want Jesus to fit into our plans a lot, just like Peter. Peter was probably used to getting his way, knowing his personality. He, he was used to that. But when we encounter Christ, as Peter did on this day, we better get used to having our way re routinely hindered. Have you figured that out yet? 
Christian, that your plans are routinely hindered? Yeah. I don't know when that started dawning on me, uh, but it has dawned on me loud and clear. And by the way, there, there was much more at stake in this interaction between Jesus and Peter, and, and it was included in the Gospel of Mark for much greater reasons than just interrupting our personal plans as the application. A minor application of this text is submitting to the will of God in our own lives. That's a minor application. A much greater point here, and what Mark wants us to understand, is that Jesus' objective in saving mankind from their sin required God to become a man. It's, it would, it is, would have been much easier for, for Peter to become a chihuahua than God to become a man and pay for the sin of mankind. That's why he came. He didn't come to make our lives more comfortable. We have a God who loves us and has done what is necessary to secure our forgiveness, to solve our chaos, and grant us eternal salvation through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what these verses are about. And so what is the accurate conception? Jesus clears it up for us here. Peter had the wrong conception. We may have the wrong conception of who God ought to be. What's the accurate conception? Well, I, I've been saying it. The bad news is actually really good news. Verse 31 is really good news for us sinners, isn't it? Yeah. The, listen to this. The, the bad news was that Jesus had to suffer many things be rejected and killed, verse 31. That's the bad news. Listen to the good news. Jesus had to suffer many things, be rejected and killed. Does that sound familiar to the bad news? It's identical. The bad news that Peter interpreted as bad news was the best news that he could have possibly ever heard. Jesus had to be rejected had to suffer, had to be killed. That's the best news that mankind has ever heard. When Jesus endured those horrible things, he took our sin upon himself. He paid the penalty that we deserve for our sinful rebellion against God. The bad news was good news. You know, when you read through the, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, you're tempted to think, oh, what horrible news, they're kicked out of the garden. That's the best news that could have happened. Why? Because in the garden there's no death and they would have lived in perpetual sin. No recovery if they hadn't have gotten the boot out of the garden. The boot was the best news they had heard up to that point. One day we'll be released from this curse. You see, Jesus fulfilled everything required by God to restore every aspect of a relationship with him through the stuff that we might interpret as bad news. In the amazing and counterintuitive plan of God, Jesus had to go to Calvary. He had to suffer. He had to die. There was nothing new said by Jesus. It's covered from Genesis to Revelation. There's nothing new. It just doesn't sound good to us. We want a Savior who will make our life comfortable. You must know Jesus' true identity and his plan. That's saving faith. Jesus' plan is to come into our world as one of us and save us from our sin. The only way to save us from our sins was to suffer and die. Finally, let's look at this. Jesus and his followers. The plan that Jesus laid out to his 12 here in verse 31 on that day was not just isolated to himself. Like this is just going to happen to me. It would eventually and ultimately include all those who would follow him, including you and me. You're going, hold on. That doesn't sound fun. Um, ridicule, suffering, death. 
check, check, check for everyone who follows Christ. Um, well, here's where Jesus loses most people. This is where the crowds walk away, right? When Jesus said these kind of things, his crowds diminished greatly. Surprise, surprise. In my next sermon, I'm going to dive more deeply into what Jesus is saying here. So uh, fear not, there's much more here, and I'm going to do my best to cover it in the weeks to come. But I wanted to give you a brief overview of this transition into the second half of this wonderful gospel. But for to tease you, to whet your appetite, I want to briefly work our way through his words in these next five verses. Uh, look at them with me, 38, or 34 through 38. This, this is really a, a, a description of the true Christian life. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to cover it in five minutes. So this sermon will end in about five, so we've got a long ways to go on this next uh, few sermons. But this is really a description of the true Christian life, those who truly embrace Jesus. Um, and what I just read for you concerning all these sacrificial things that Jesus says his disciples must go through doesn't look anything like someone who has described our life as our best life now. That doesn't sound the same. I'm not a genius, but it seems that Jesus is alerting us to a challenging path here. Not, not one that's comfortable and easy and better, quote-unquote, but it is a joyful path. Don't lose heart, Christian. It's a joyful path. Jesus lays out three ingredients here that we're going to dissect thoroughly on a future date, but shortly here. First is self-denial. Do you see it? He must deny himself, verse 34. That's the first thing. If you're going to follow me, here's step one. Deny yourself. And, of course, self-denial is anti-American. We know that, right? This idea goes against the grain and the values of our society. Self-denial, the concept of denying self is repulsive to most people, especially in our culture. When, but what is self-denial? What's Jesus saying here? It's, it's really giving up your rights to self-government, being your own boss, making your own decisions about what things ought to be. And we're told that should never happen. No one should ever tell you how you ought to live, how you ought to think. Unless you believe Jesus is God, <laughs> then your opinion has to change, right? But according to Jesus, self-denial means that instead of following our own will and trusting our own plan, self-denial puts those things away. The self is no longer in play. In A.W. Tozer's great book, The Pursuit of God, Chapter 2, he describes self-denial in a very sobering but encouraging way. Uh, and I'm anxious to unpack Tozer's thoughts with you uh, in my next sermon. But just a hint for you, self-denial doesn't mean you can't have nice things or enjoy them. That is not biblical theology, although it's preached all the time. <laughs> I, I grew up learning that. I, my mom used to tell me, and I love my mom to death, John, if it tastes good, it's bad for you. <laughs> and, and that was her theology. Still is, kind of. My dad's theology used to be the same. Now it's completely changed, and he's right on target. <laughs> he's with the Lord. He's the perfect theologian now. Um, remember that Jesus said here to deny self, not deny things. Deny self. It's okay to have things and enjoy things as long as they don't define you. And that's what we'll learn. Self is the problem, not things. Self is the issue, not the gifts God gives us. 
This is how it's always been. Abraham is the biblical example here, isn't he? One of many. He had plenty of things that he was the richest man on the planet when he was alive. But God taught him that those things didn't define him. But we'll dive into that more deeply next time. Secondly, Jesus says, not only do you have to deny yourself, to take up your cross. That's just a more piercing way to say, deny yourself. <laughs> it has a little more weight and gravitas, doesn't it, when you take up your cross? That makes you consider a little more deeply what it means to deny yourself. Luke records the word daily. He goes, take up your cross daily. We read that earlier in our service. And Luke includes the word daily because he understood that this isn't a one-time decision. Wouldn't it be great if it were? You just have to come to a point in your spiritual maturity where you can say, I am yours, I surrender all. Don't you wish you could just sing, I surrender all, that song, and it'd be over? But we keep singing that thing. <laughs> and we keep repenting of not surrendering all. Or surrendering and resurrendering. The same things. It's a daily decision. It's a moment-by-moment moment decision to take up your cross. Believe me, you will face this same decision tomorrow and the next day. Have you died to self and taken up the sacrificial life that Jesus exemplified? Have you done that this morning? I don't care about yesterday. And here is Jesus. Did you do that this morning? Are you doing that now? Are you taking up your cross in this moment? Taking up the, the priorities of Christ now? Will you die to self in the lobby after church or, or will you demand your own way? I'm driving, honey. You drove to church. I'm driving home. Will you die to self on your way home? Will you die to self later this afternoon, take up your cross at work tomorrow? Or will self rule the, rule the day? What's it going to be? You want to follow me? Jesus says, deny yourself and really deny yourself. Take up your cross. It's a lifelong process. And as it sounds, it's painful. Dying on a cross I hear is painful. So this is why Jesus used this kind of language. Thirdly and finally, Jesus said, you follow me by doing this. Uh, denying self, taking up your cross, and here we go again. Follow me. So following Jesus really is a summary of what it means to deny self and to take up the cross. Because this is how Jesus lived. Remember our study in Philippians chapter 2? This is how Jesus lived. It's a comprehensive statement, right? Follow Jesus. That's what it means. Um, are you going to not only embrace Jesus' true identity, those who claim to know Christ, to love Christ, to follow Christ, to be Christians, are you going to go beyond simply embracing his identity to embracing his plan? Are you going to follow him daily? Friends, notice verses 35 through 30, it all begin with the word for. You see that? He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. For, verse 35. For, verse 36. For, verse 37. For, verse 38. This is the basis for God's plan in your life. This is the basis for doing these things that Jesus is commanding us to do. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Why? Because whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And verse 36, 37, 38. This is why you do these things. So in verse, five we see, in verse 35, we see that we must not value our own physical life more than loving and serving Jesus Christ. For whoever would save his life, you want to protect your life, prioritize your life, make much of your life, then you'll never have Christ's life. Jim Elliot's a good example of this. His physical life was a distant second in his list of priorities. 
He says this, his famous quote, which I have on my study wall next door, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What a life-altering perspective. And by the way, this mirrors, this isn't Eliot's thought, this is Jesus' thought. Eliot's famous quote is just <laughs> a rewriting of verse 35. Friends, if you treasure your comfortable physical life above everything else, you'll discover that you will lose it. If you think that your life, your plans, your world takes priority over Jesus' plan, then you'll never know the joy of following him. You'll never experience the joy of releasing the reins of your life and handing them over to Christ. If you find yourself saying things like, I can't do that because it would eliminate my advantages, you're cutting yourself off from true joy and fulfilling life that Jesus intends for his people. If you say to your spouse, we need to do this or do that for our kids or not do such and such because they would, wouldn't have all the things we want for them, then you're making the same error Peter did. On the other hand, if you hand your life and the lives of your children over to Christ to be used as he see fits, it's the best possible decision you can make. That's Jesus' point here. It's the only way to a full and rewarding, joyful life. I know it's counterintuitive, believe me. I know it's counterintuitive, but it's the truth of the gospel right here. And so you need to believe that there's never too much you can risk for Jesus and his cause, for the gospel. Jim Elliot died with an Alka spear in his chest and his heart was in that moment overflowing with exuberant joy. And so the only worth, life worth living is the one that denies self, puts death, the life death daily, follows Jesus and everything. So friends, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. It might help you. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus' summons to the rich young man was calling him to die because the only man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Does that sound good to you? It sounds hard, doesn't it? Yeah. Friends, this is the only way to live. We, we have to go down this road if we think we're going to be following Jesus. Pray with me. Lord, these difficult words were hard on Peter. I think they're equally hard on us. I ask that through the power of your spirit and through your mercy and grace, we might embrace these things as Peter ultimately did, finally did, giving up his own life physically, embracing the cross completely. Father, my heart's desire for Sun Valley Church is that each and every one of us will do this, that, that we will believe what Jesus is saying here that we wouldn't be uh, persuaded by the influences of the world around us, but that we would actually believe what Jesus is saying here. And that we would put all of our eggs into that basket and leave no eggs in the world's basket. Father, do this work of grace, do this miracle of grace in us here at Sun Valley. And I pray this in the name of our great Savior, suffering Savior. Jesus Christ. Amen.